Welcome to episode eight of The Riser. I'm Greg Strong of the Canadian Press with Ted Wyman of Post Media. And today we'll be joined by Melissa Martin, a multi-award-winning journalist from the Winnipeg Free Press who's currently living in Kyiv, Ukraine. Before we get to Melissa, Ted, what's going on in Winnipeg, buddy? Lots of snow, my friend. Lots of snow. First time all year that we've had a big dump of snow, about 10 centimeters. All happened overnight. It was like spring yesterday. Today, it's full-on winter again. Nobody really feels sorry for us, do they? I mean, I understand. We are the ones that choose to live here, so I guess we have to live with it. I tell you, man, what a great weekend of sports again. Um, this has just been, ever since we started this podcast, it just seems like there's just been so much great sports news. And obviously, you and I being big curling uh, enthusiasts and writers, um, just a, an amazing Scotty's Tournament of Hearts, which I'm sure we're going to get to in depth later on in the show but uh i really enjoyed watching that and uh, i thought it was a pretty fantastic weekend of curling yeah several storylines on the golf course at the scotties and i'm thrilled we have melissa on to uh chime in on jennifer jones her retirement announcement and a very interesting week in calgary i'm back uh from dunedin florida spent uh 10 days there covering the Blue Jays and spring training. Lots of storylines there, some NHL news, CFL news. Always uh, several great stories on the go, so I'm glad we're able to connect here on a rare Monday recording, and we've got Melissa standing by, so let's get to it. Right on. All right, well, let's, uh, without further ado, like to welcome Winnipeg Free Press writer Melissa Martin, a winner of multiple National Newspaper Awards, and twice named Canada's Columnist of the Year. Melissa spent time in the sports department at her outlet and has penned many great pieces about curling, a game that is near and dear to her heart. Martin is currently on sabbatical from the free press and is living in Kyiv, Ukraine. She joins us from there now. Hello, Melissa. Welcome. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, Melissa. Great to see you. Great to see you. This is it's so exciting. I was gonna say you, you, the three of us have had some really great memories over the years at uh, curling, Scotties in particular. So it's just it seems very it seems very sad that we didn't get to do it this year with the uh, historic year that it was. But uh, yeah, none of us were there, amazingly. But uh, nonetheless, all all followed it from afar. Some farther than others. You, in fact, the farthest. I'm guessing. Melissa, I just, uh, you know, very curious myself, and I'm sure for our uh, listeners to this podcast, um, would love to know how you're doing and the fact that you're living in Ukraine. Can you sort of tell us how you ended up there, why you've stayed so long, given that that country is currently at war? Yeah, well, I mean, I had come, first come in 2022, um, you know, for, for work, obviously, as a journalist, um, I, you know, I just really wanted to be here covering the conflict and uh, had done two long work trips. And I'll be honest, I, it's so funny, I talked to a lot of, of the foreign journalists here, a lot of, and a lot of us have pretty similar experiences, we just didn't want to leave, <laughs> you know, we didn't want to leave. So uh, I didn't. Um yeah, I just I, I kind of was at a point in my life and career too that I just needed I needed to, a break for a little bit. I think from what I had been doing, um, had the opportunity to do it. The you know kind of support of the paper, take a bit of a sabbatical, um, just come out here and do different kinds of work, uh, like uh, kind of outside of sort of the daily grind a little bit, and just um, yeah, and just uh, there's a lot of things that kind of made me want to stay here and explore it a little bit more and. Uh, I mean, the I mean, 
as as a journalist, um, a conflict is a very you know, a, a interesting place to work, right? Because there's just so many aspects to explore and shed light on. Um, but then also just as a person, I, I can't I can't say enough about how much I love this country and and in particular Kiev, the city. I just um, really special place, really special place to live and. Uh, yeah, you just kind of don't want to don't want to go home. <laughs> so, so here we are. And uh, I was originally going to stay a year. Now it's been a year and a month. Um, and I'm uh, as things stand now, I'm kind of I'm staying a while longer. So, uh, just take kind of taking it day by day. And when I when I feel like coming home or I run out of money, I'll uh, <laughs> start coming home. Well, Melissa, I'm thrilled we we're able to reconnect. I was trying to think of the last time we were together on a media riser. And I think it was two and a half years ago, if memory serves, at the Saskatoon curling trials, if I have Yeah, right. 2020, right. I know, and I wasn't even, I was just there for fun, which is like, I think that's your ultimate, um, I think that's when you've like crossed the event horizon of becoming like the ultimate curling nerd is like, you know, when you're a curling reporter and then you start going to like, going to Saskatoon for fun. <laughs> to love, see it. love it, love it. I wanted to ask you one about Ukraine, and aside from the obvious storylines that are there, what stories kind of jumped out at you when you first arrived and uh, kind of grabbed your attention right away? Ukraine, I, I think like, um, you know, I, I'm not like a diehard, like I'm not like a war reporter, you know what I mean? I, um, I, I've been out to sort of closer to the line of contact, but um I, I try to keep very smart limits for myself just because I know what my limits are in terms of, uh, I'm also not really trained in like, uh, com like for like trauma medicine and stuff. So there's, so yeah, so I'm not kind of doing the real down and dirty, like in the trenches uh, kind of reporting, uh, which is fine. Cause I think for me, it's always, I'm just really interested in people like in kind of whatever, and it's uh, like whatever genre or, or topic I'm covering, whether it's like sports or a war or sort of, just really spending time with like normal people is like really tends to be inspiring to me. And because of sort of the pressure that a, a country at war is under, um, you see the best of people and the worst of people. And you see uh, just, there's just a lot of really interesting textures in terms of how does a people, how does a culture, how does a society, a government, um, you know, how do you react to these kind of pressures and adapt to them? And, um there's a lot of stuff in there that's uh just really inspiring in terms of how every sector of Ukrainian society has sort of adapted responded and then there's also a lot of stuff that's incredibly sad you know incredibly difficult uh to watch but that's sort of part of the story too and it's part of the sort of human experience right of uh yeah just kind of how does this affect a people um so yeah so it's sort of like a wide variety of stories but yeah i mostly focus on sort of civilian life uh humanitarian stuff um i'm quite interested we'll see where this project goes but i'm quite interested in sort of how foreign uh foreign volunteers are operating here because that's a very mixed bag shall we say um like and like humanitarian or military volunteers um it's a very interesting world uh, in both good and, and and really bad ways. So that's been kind of interesting just to, I spent a lot of last year just kind of really gathering material on that and we'll see kind of what that um, transforms into in terms of a published product. But 
yeah so that's those are kind of some of the stories sometimes I and then just also even but the funny stuff is like I'm actually really interested in stuff that's kind of outside the war too like just sort of the the physical textures of this country and some stuff about the culture and the lifestyle and the uh, it's just really interesting um, in ways that existed long before this war and will exist long after. And that's, uh, I think that's really fun just to get to know that. Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick follow, if I could, Melissa, I'd like to get a little bit deeper into your writing process when it comes, not just for Ukraine, but just in general, when it comes to writing columns, how do you know when there's a story that deserves a bigger take and how do you find a way to evoke so much emotion in your work? Honestly, and maybe this is why sometimes I've really struggled too, is because like um, for something to be good, like I really have to feel it. Like I really have to just feel like really emotionally sort of seized by something. Because um, like I like I do tend to like I put a lot of my, myself into what I write. Um, so if I'm not kind of like like so sometimes you just find a little thing that just really gets you you know like it just for whatever reason sometimes you can't quite pin your finger down on it but yes no there's something really beautiful here or you just know there's the right combination of factors that you're like you know I could I could tell this story even if it's just one quite quiet little story you're like I, I just feel really kind of inspired by this um yeah, and then you just take it from there. I'm, I'm kind of this believer that you can make like pretty much anything really interesting as long as you take the time, right? Because like people tend to be very interested in other people. So it's sort of like you can take almost any little story and as long as you're really giving it the depth that they feel like they've met this person who maybe has a totally different experience than than the reader did. But they're kind of like having this conversation or they're, they're learning about a person or meeting a person. And you're just kind of the intermediary through that's happening. I, I think you can take almost anything. It doesn't even have to be like super dramatic or um, anything. It's just sort of like just sort of be the intermediary through which people can kind of meet each other and imagine themselves maybe in like a completely different set of circumstances than they're accustomed to. You know, Melissa, I have another question I want to get to, but just before I do, I just wanted to say, you know, you and Greg and I got to know each other through curling. We're covering a sport. Um, you're writing a very different kind of uh, thing than what you're writing when you're in Ukraine. And you're also putting yourself in a very different kind of situation. So can you just give us a sense of what the danger level is where you are and, and how much you've seen of the war up close? Sure. So it varies quite a bit around the country, right? Um, I'll say this. Okay, let's just start with this. Like it, everywhere in Ukraine, there's uh, for the most part, there's a risk of say airstrikes. Um, I mean, I say everywhere, but I mean if you're in some little village in the middle of nowhere in Western Ukraine, you never like I don't even think the Transcarpathians have ever gotten hit with anything. Like, um, but let's just like Kiev, Lviv are very safe, um, especially since air defense, uh, like air defense has gotten a lot better. That said, there's also this concern they're starting to run out of air defense missiles. Um, but I think somebody even did the numbers and even in Kyiv over the last year, let's say like, uh, you know, your chance of dying in a typical traffic accident are higher than your chance of dying from missile attacks. We do get attacks, they can be, but they're very unpredictable. Like, um, I remember like April or May, what was it? April of 23 in Kiev, we were getting attacked like every other night. 
because it was like just when the uh, Patriot missile systems, the air defense had arrived. And I think Russians were, my kind of assumption is, I think they were really trying to take those systems out um, or overwhelm them or something. So we were getting hit literally every other night. It'd be like, and it often would alternate. So it'd be like drones, like because you get drones, because the drones often they use to find air defense signatures, um, like radar signatures. So they know where the systems are. Um, which the systems are movable, but whatever. So they'll use drones, and then two nights later, you'd start getting missiles, including like the hypersonic. So, like, yeah, so there was times like April, May, we were getting attacked a lot. And then now, I guess we got hit a few weeks ago, but now, now it's like you might not get anything for a month, kind of thing in Kiev. And if you do, just overall, the risk is is quite low now. Um, this air defense has been very good, and they're just not. Uh, I think Russia is a bit low on long range missiles too, so they're just not hitting Kiev the way they used to. That said, you start going closer to like those, uh, but then there's other cities like Kharkiv gets hit all the time, still. And I was in Kharkiv uh, last month, and you know you walk around the downtown, and it's like there, you know, this is the second biggest city in Ukraine. It's like two million people or a million and a half or something. And it's like, uh, yeah, like the downtown is just tons of buildings, like destroyed buildings, and uh, and they get hit quite a lot. Um, yeah, and then uh, Kherson is an artillery range, so that's another major city that's getting, but it gets actual shelling, which is to me the scariest thing. Like, I usually my limit is usually I'll try to stay out of artillery range. I think um, just because that's almost scarier than missiles, and I can't really explain why that that is but it's just because there's more of it i guess and there's no warning um yeah and so in terms of like where i've been like i i do kind of go out east uh this area donetsk oblast it's called the like city called kramatorsk slovyansk about 40 kilometers from the front line um which uh and even there, it's quite like, I've always felt very safe in Kramatorsk personally, but that said, it is within range of a lot of different types of weapons. Um, it sometimes it gets hit very hard in the city. Like, um, you know, there used to be this restaurant in downtown Kramatorsk. It was one of the few restaurants because the whole city is sort of, um, you know, civilian life is very suspended there. It's uh, most civilians are gone. Most things are closed. It's mostly a soldiers there. And, but there, there was a, this one restaurant that was always open called Ria Pizza. And we used to go there all the time. It was all like journalists would go there, you know, NGOs, humanitarian workers. And I was there one night at like 7.30 and then, uh, you know, it was for coffee and stuff because they don't sell booze there. And then like a, a, the next week at like the same time, they bombed it, killed like, uh, you know, 16 people, mostly civilians, including, I'm pretty sure a waiter from the night I had been there before, like the week before. So it's sort of like, so yeah, it varies quite a bit. And once when I was out in that area, I did go quite close to the front. I, I didn't realize how I was out with a humanitarian mission and I don't, I don't think it had been very well communicated to me where exactly we were going. And I probably should have asked a little bit more, but we got pretty close. Like we're in the city called Chasavira. That's quite dangerous. It's sort of like the next big city down for, or not big, but it's the next city down from Bakhmut which you've probably read about and that's within incoming artillery so that was the first and only time I've been around incoming artillery and I uh nothing got super close it wasn't super close to us you know but it has a very distinctive sound 
<laughs> and um yeah I was there for about I was with this humanitarian team for about three hours meeting with some of these uh, kind of vulnerable seniors and by the end of it my you know it was like <laughs> like this I just said I just said to them I was like I, I think I'm done like my nerves are just shot like uh and they're like oh you'll get used to it I'm like you know what I actually believe you yeah I completely believe you that you do because I remember when I first started coming here in 2022 and the air raid sirens would freak me out like I'd be super scared and now I like I don't even notice them you know like I'll be on the phone sometimes with people back home and a siren will start going and they're like are you okay like do you need to go anywhere I'm like oh oh sorry I didn't like you you kind of tune them out right so it's it's very strange like I believe that you would get used to sort of the incoming artillery but I was like I don't I don't think I want to like I don't I think I'm going to draw that line there because the start the point at which you start becoming used to it is maybe the point out which you start taking risks that I don't think I'm prepared to take so yeah I just want to thank you so much for sharing that with us Melissa by the way I mean that's really an incredible story and I'm going to segue to much more frivolous things which are being a sports writer <laughs> so I mean you you made such a mark yourself as a columnist and a feature writer award winner and uh, many times um, but you've also had some stints in sports. So I was interested in what your attraction has been to write about sports and if it's something you always wanted to do. Well, I ended up in sports like pretty much by accident back in 2013, um, just because uh, get, you know, skip the long story. But uh, I uh, basically I had just gotten assigned there by the free press due to just the way a staffing situation shook out. Um so yeah, I just kind of ended up there and I was like, all right. I mean, and I was a sports fan, you know, so I wasn't like some, you know, had no particular like expertise, but I was a big CFL fan for sure. Uh, you know, pretty big Jets fan. And I, and I, at the time, like 2013, I was a, I was a new curling fan because I'd really only gotten into it in like the Kevin Martin Olympics. Um, like what, 2012 was that? Or tw no, 2010, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Kevin Martin Olympics, <laughs> uh, is when I got into curling. So I was still a pretty new curling fan, but, um, but yeah, like I said, I kind of up on the sports beat and I remember I had this meeting with the editor kind of my first day on the job and he said, okay, well, if you're going to be on sports, like what, what kind of, would you be interested in covering? And I was like, well, you know, I said, uh, I can't remember. I think the only one I asked to cover was the, the curling, as we say, can I cover the curling? <laughs> Just because I thought it would seem like it would be, you know, I was, I was getting really into the sport a little bit and I just thought it seemed like it would be really fun. And I was right. <laughs> hmm. I'd be remiss, Melissa, if I didn't ask you about the Jennifer Jones retirement announcement. Were you surprised by it? What do you think? I mean, I guess. No, I think I had kind of thought she would play out the quad, especially since the team's doing well. Like, they're, I mean, they're, they're in the mix, you know, obviously, as we just saw, like, you know, if they were getting washed out of everything, I maybe would kind of understand, but I think I kind of thought she would play out the quad, you know, um, but I understand there's a lot of moving parts and, you know, and, and a lot of reasons your feelings can change, you know, um, especially after the career she's had or, so yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, I was surprised in the way that I, I thought she would finish it out, um, but maybe not surprising. I mean, it makes complete sense. Like at this stage of her career, 
I, I mean, I, I had, I was quite sure she would retire after the Olympics actually. Like, um, I think a lot of us probably were right. Like I was waiting for that. And I remember even sending her text being like, if you have anything to announce, like think of your pals, double M, you know? Uh, and then she, and then the announcement was that she, you know, she's starting this new team with the, these kind of young hot shots. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was surprised and not surprised, but I was really actually quite sad because I actually had even thought about that before. I, I remember when I was getting ready to leave Ukraine, but I thought, well, like I, I had, cause I was thinking, well, what are the things you're going to miss while you're outside of Canada? And I was thinking about curling and what could I miss, but I, I really didn't think Jen was going to retire. Cause like I, I would have wanted to be there, you know, and write the heck out of that last game retirement column, but say la vie. You know, I know you recently wrote about Jen in the free press and you've done so many times over your career. Greg and I agreed last week that she's the greatest curler of all time. Certainly a lot of people agree with us on that one. You've gotten to know her more on a personal level than some others. So what are your biggest takeaways from her remarkable career, uh, Melissa? And and what are some stories that you've written that really stood out for you? You know, the best story, I, the story I was always most excited to do with Jen that never saw the light of day and I'm still sad about it. Um, there was one, what was the Scotties that she was going for? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember which one. Um, she was basically, she was going for, I can't, I'm trying to remember what year it is, but she, she ended up not doing as nearly as well as she thought, like she was going to go for this record. And I had pre-written a story like I had sat down in the hotel room for quite a while and we went through every single one of her Scotty's wins I think and like reminisced about each one and I had this all set up like it was going to be this great package of like you know JJ kind of reminiscing about her best memories and worst memories from every single one of her previous wins and uh then she didn't didn't win it, I, I remember I kind of had this package together at the time it looked like she was really likely to to kind of do it you know um and we want to have it kind of ready to go and she Sydney, didn't sorry to interrupt melissa i think it was sydney 2019 maybe i think she came up short oh i bet that was and then she didn't even qualify yeah which was the funniest i have a really funny story from after that that i i, I yeah i didn't think i won't get into it too publicly but she was very funny after that loss actually like you'd think it would be heartbreaking i'm sure it was in the moment but um I remember I won't get into it too much but I, I did get to spend a little time with her after that and she was very very funny like just cracking some very funny jokes about not qualifying you know uh and I was like okay well I'm glad you're feeling all right <laughs> Some of us thought that was like the end for her then even though right you know it's like it didn't seem like she had that much left when and we were all at that that Scotty's in Sydney and she wasn't really a big part of the mix it's like well is that it for Jen well, no, no. <laughs> She's then, back at the Olympics. She's she back. back and won the Olympic trials, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just, you know, even if you thought she was down, there was no way she really was, which is why I'm a little surprised she's retiring because she's obviously still this good and she's got a young team. You can keep going, right? That's, that's the crazy thing, right? Is like, uh, yeah, like I said, if like if she was like really playing terribly, it would almost kind of make sense, but it's like, but like I said, I mean, I imagine our kids are getting older too. I imagine there's just like a lot of demands on your time as well. Like, and kind of curling the way they do it is so demanding, you know? So 
I can get how you can kind of say, okay, maybe that's time to time to move on. But but yeah, no, like I like Jen to me is just like like just one of my favorite characters I've ever kind of come across. Like I just uh, I think she's like remarkable and and so funny. And that was like in my like thing I wrote. Like I think probably maybe fans don't appreciate it, don't know, or not appreciate. It, they don't know how funny she is. I think just because you don't really see that as much because it's like game pace, you know, and then media interviews, and that's kind of what you see. But like, man, she's so witty. Like it's, you know, and she always has this very like right before she really lands a zinger. Like she always gets this real like glint in her eye. You know, she's about to say something like pretty wickedly funny. But she's so sharp, you know, and I talked to a few people who have, um, you know, been close to her in curling over the years in different uh, ways. Like for this piece, I kind of said, like, because I was like, I want to do this column like around like this whole like what Jennifer Jones is really like question. And all of them said the same thing. They're like, the humor was like the first thing that surprised me when I got to know her. Like, I maybe didn't expect her to be that funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. No, I'd like to ask. Sorry. Let's go ahead, Melissa. No, I would just rant on the same topic, but I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, we could go on and on about JJ for sure. A legend. I uh, I wanted to ask you one last one about the media scene in Ukraine. Can you kind of sum up how people are getting their news and, and what kind of setup is in place domestically, radio, television, online? Like, what's happening now? Ukraine? Uh, it's, I think everything is pretty, uh, it's, you know, it's like my Ukraine is not great. So keep in mind, I'm not consuming a lot of domestic media. Um, I do sometimes put the TV on. There's a bit of an odd situation right now where at the beginning of the war, because it's martial law now, so they have some, the state has some authority to do things. So they did a thing where they unified what the TV channels show in terms of news. Um, and I should clarify, it's not state controlled news. Like the journalism is still independent journalism and they still like this country actually has quite a bit of very adversarial journalism with the government, which is great because um, certain, certain nearby countries <laughs> don't always have that. <laughs> um, but um but what it is, is sort of the, like, you go through the channels, right? And, like, um, TV channels can show, like, their own non-news programming. Like, they might have, like, you know, sitcoms or imported, like, reruns of Friends or something. But the news stuff is actually just one unified thing that they all share. So they all contribute. My understanding is they all contribute reporting to it and it all is shared. And I think the idea of that was they want to make sure that everybody like that everyone in the country was getting the same information no matter what channel you were watching so that it wouldn't be a situation where like uh you know people were getting different information because they were consuming different media so it's not like as totalitarian as it it's not even as authoritarian as it sounds and i kind of get the idea behind it is you want to make sure especially if situations can change a lot uh you want to make sure everyone's kind of getting the same news um but it is at this point, I think a lot of people are kind of ready for that to be over. Like the things are so stabilized um, that, yeah. So, but there's like, yeah, there's TV, yeah. TV, radio, newspapers, like online papers. There's some really good, um, I understand that there's some pretty good, like sort of independent sites that have some pretty good, uh, do some pretty good investigative journalism um, here. Um, 
I think one of the challenges is trying to get like journalism in some of the real frontline areas. There's been some pretty interesting initiatives actually where the uh, they do have like a frontline newspaper for some of these villages that are like really under fire and they have like they actually do actual like reporting and then deliver newspapers out to these old people because a lot of them don't really have um, necessarily TVs and things like that. So they'll kind of deliver it, but it's it's a pretty interesting thing they've done a few times, I think. But yeah, other than that, I would say media here is like fairly, you know, pretty typical to what say you and I are, yeah, used to. Is there any sports going on, Melissa? So interestingly, actually, just and I'm pretty sad about it because I just I couldn't go last night, um, and I think it was the last game of the year. But they just started hockey with fans again um because they had uh yeah i think this year they had restarted like they have this hockey league but for the first while like i watched a couple games and they didn't have any fans um and uh but yeah they just started allowing fans back in this uh, arena that's kind of just uh, not too far from me actually um yeah and a friend invited me to go to two games this week and I couldn't make either one and I'm pretty sad about it because actually would have been pretty neat they only apparently they only had like 200 people in the arena so hockey's not like huge here I wouldn't say um they do have because they have some like Shakhtar like the they have got a couple like uh football uh, you know soccer teams um but my understanding is they're all playing outside the country right now I don't think they're doing anything at home um because they're trying to avoid large gatherings for the most part. Um, so that's the sports I know about. Like maybe this summer, like, I don't know if things will kind of change this summer as things continue to kind of stabilize. Like we'll see. Um, but yeah. Well, it sure makes us feel lucky that we're able to just go about our lives and go attend hockey games and curling games and football games and everything else that we want to. And uh, I obviously, and Greg, I'm sure I can speak for him, can't thank you enough for joining us and sharing all of this with us. I did want to ask one more thing, possibly, of you, Melissa. Would you be willing to share your story about your guitar? Uh, you and Greg and I have played guitar together numerous wow. times when we're out on our curling beats and whatnot, and you got a pretty interesting story about your guitar. Yeah, so one of the things I really wanted um, when I kind of moved here for the year was I really wanted a guitar just because I love it's very calming for me. I just really love playing by myself, even usually, you know, like sitting around. Um, anyway, and I had a guitar for a bit uh, that a friend had lent me, but then he took it back. But um, for my birthday in November, uh, the, the very uh, person close to me brought me this thing. And um, it's got a great story. So this is the, yeah, so just this like, uh, just this little, like a little classical guitar you know nothing too fancy but the story of this guitar is so um sort of my gentleman companion uh you know used to uh work in a recruiting office uh for the military here um, he was when he was a soldier and um they had a soldier i don't i think the guy was you ukrainian citizen but had lived in moldova or maybe was born here but had lived most of his life in moldova but this guy had come to fight and enlisted and, and, and I think was working there for a bit and ended up, um, I guess, getting transferred out uh, to combat. But he had brought this guitar and ended up leaving it at the recruitment office. Um, and um, sadly, 
uh, he did not survive. Um, I understand it, but then they had this guitar, and then so yeah, my uh, my companion brought it to me, and then it was uh, a really nice thing because a good friend of his was really good friends with the guy who owned this guitar, and so that guy was over a few weeks ago, and yeah, I got to play guitar for him, uh, and I think it was like kind of saying it was meaningful for him to know that his friend's guitar was being played and then there's like this case for it that says uh just it's in russian but it just says uh you know kind of you know basically thanks thank you all you like to all the warriors of ukraine and then his name and then glory to ukraine um so anyway it's just it's a very interesting piece to have and i've been uh I've been loving playing it for sure. And and so I'm glad that it's found a good home because I, I think no one else at the office really played. So, yeah. Well, the amazing stories, Melissa. Thank you so much for uh, taking a half hour out of your evening over there. And great to reconnect. It's been far too long. And please stay safe over there. Thank it you. So fun. It's so fun to see you guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's like, it's, uh, it's great to talk. Thanks so much, Melissa. Just fantastic. Cheers. Okay. Bye, guys. Well, what a great conversation that was with Melissa Martin of the Winnipeg Free Press. And Greg, that kind of puts a lot of things into perspective, doesn't it? When you're talking to somebody who's living basically in a war zone, in a country that's been under attack for two years now. Um, she's still got her finger on the pulse of the sports world and what's going on back here in Canada, but uh, some pretty amazing stories from Melissa, wouldn't you say? Yeah, really great chat. I'm uh, so pleased that she was able to connect with us today. It, it had been a long time since, uh, since I chatted with her and uh, yeah, just great stories. I mean, obviously very um, intense situation over there, but uh, just a nice mix of stories. I'm, I'm so glad she was able to uh, come on with us today and share some of them. And obviously, as we move on to the hot topics, we already talked a little bit about the Scotties Tournament of Hearts with Melissa, who is a longtime curling reporter. Greg, you are also a longtime curling reporter, as am I. And it was quite an event, the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. I don't remember too many that have had more news coming out of them. Maybe not more interest. <laughs> what was your take on this event as a whole? Yeah, it's interesting. I was in touch with uh, a few of our colleagues who were there covering it, and one of them described it as, as the most intense National Women's Curling Champ they could remember for a variety of reasons. And as we touched on previously, I mean, the news stories were, you know, significant. And to have it all lead up to a final that I think was a safe bet if we were going to predict things at the start of the event. Um, but I mean, Holman Jones has really delivered over the last decade or so, as far as one of the great rivalries in, in the sport. And it was no different this time around with three great games between them that went right down to the wire. And it was no different in the final. Um, it's amazing to me, you know, how sometimes in the ninth, 10th end of a huge event, like a Scotty's, a Briar, an Olympic trials, how sometimes inexperience can really make its mark. And it can be just little things where, you know, maybe a rock gets hogged, maybe, you know, the, the turn was on the wrong side of the stone, whatever it might be. Uh, it's amazing how that doesn't seem like it's gonna happen for the first 10 days and then boom, when the pressure is, is, is at its peak, 
it can really impact a lot of players. Um, and we, we've seen that at other events, uh, the Olympic trials. I remember Tracy Fleury was what, an inch or two from, from being Canada's representative at that event. Um, you know, we've seen it with some of the men's teams too, but uh, yeah, some, all we wanted at these events are great stories and the Scotties 2024 was just full of them. What were your takeaways, Ted? Well, there's so many, right? I mean, there was the Brianne Harris ineligibility, which still hasn't, that's still a mystery that we don't know the answer to. There was Carrie Anderson going for a fifth straight, but not able to do it, not having her regular lead with her, gets knocked out in the preliminary round of the playoffs. Uh, that amazing run ends. And of course, they need to be commended for what they've done since 2020 and winning four straight. And Jennifer Jones announcing before she was leaving that she would be retiring. And of course, Rachel Homan coming into the event having lost only five games all season. And you know how many they've lost now? Still five. 48 and five overall. Truly one of the greatest seasons in the history of curling, men's or women's, and they cap it with a championship. And I would like to say that I thought Rachel Holman was very classy at the end of that event because everyone wanted to talk about Jennifer Jones, not so much about her. And she had some very nice words for Jennifer Jones as well as everyone else did. It was kind of the Jennifer Jones farewell tour, and it couldn't really have worked out better. I just think Curling Canada uh, benefited from that. I think T Curling on TSN benefited from it, from all of the news surrounding it. And I got to tell you, our numbers at Post Media are off the charts for curling. It's unbelievable how many people were reading our stories about, about curling. I mean, way out going far, far beyond anything you could get of an NHL story or a CFL story, you know, a baseball story, anything like that. Nothing came close. And uh, that's something that maybe not everybody would realize that there is this significant interest in curling. And I find it generally is more on the women's side. There seems to be just a little more interest, maybe in the personalities on the women's side, maybe particularly in Jennifer Jones. And obviously a lot of interest in that Brianne Harris ineligibility situation. But uh, I, I'll take this away as one of the most memorable uh, Scotties that I've ever, unfortunately, not witnessed in person, but watched on television and been a part of the coverage. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I think there's still some things that we're going to find out after this, but it's really been something else. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting to me with all those storylines, as you touched on, somewhat lost in the shuffle here is that Rachel Holman, Team Rachel Holman, just rose above and was dominant frankly i mean just victory after victory winning the big matches coming up with the big shots when they really counted and to see them back in form i mean i'd be very nervous if i were the rest of the women's field right now because they seem just totally peaking at the right time after a few seasons where you weren't sure if they were going to get over the hump as far as a national championship victory and or you know an olympic trials win now they've got that They've got that Scotty's victory that they really wanted. Uh, and she gets a chance to play at a world championship in her home country, which, um, you know, I'm sure she'd love to raise uh, the world championship trophy on, on home ice, if you will. So we've got the, the world's women's worlds coming up in Sydney, Nova Scotia in a few weeks. There were a few other interesting little storylines to me as well. Attendance, I thought, you know, I think it was announced as being pretty solid. The eye test didn't work for me. I was watching, and this is another storyline too, is the international broadcast broadcast for Curling Canada events. 
weren't finalized publicly until the day of the competition. And I was in Florida and, and keen to figure out how I was going to watch some of this in the evenings. And it was available on YouTube via TSN's YouTube feed. So unusual because in the past they've had coverage on ESPN3, I believe. Um, so that might be something where, uh, you know, add, add to Nolan Thiessen's uh, long to-do list. Got to get, there's tons of international fans that want to watch the Canadian Championships. Sometimes they don't know how. So that was an interesting one. Attendance, the eye test was not passed for me. The venue looked maybe half to two thirds full, I'd say more often than not. Obviously a little bit different on the final weekend. Uh, the final was well attended, but that is a storyline that will not go away. Why can't they get bums and seats at major curling events? Uh, and yeah, the other interesting thing was the five-way tie. And we used that last stone draw numbers, which a lot of people still, it still uh, rubs up them the wrong way. But the reality is, I mean, they use it at the Worlds, they use it at the Olympics. Why wouldn't you use it at the Canadian Championships? And hey, it doesn't, you know, it means uh, you don't have all those tiebreakers on a Friday morning. Any, uh, anything else stand out to you, Ted? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was in Mexico when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but you asked me who was going to win. I think I said Rachel Holman. I think oh. you said Krista McCarvel. Huh? Krista McCarvel, how did your pick turn out? I, I don't remember. I can't get it all the time, buddy. Can't, can't learn all the time. <laughs> well, I did pick the front runner, the team that was uh, 37 and 5 at the time or something like that. So I guess I, you know, I might be uh, just going with the uh, odds on favorite there. As I did when you asked me who I thought would win the Briar, I took uh, Brendan Botcher, who's number one in Canada right now. But let's just segue to that, Greg. The Briar, it starts on Friday in Regina. I don't know if it can possibly live up to the kind of event that the Scotties ended up being, but uh, I'm sure the men of this curling, men curlers of this country will give it their best shot. What do you expect to see there? Is it, you know, my, my prediction is Brendan Botcher is going to finally be the one to get past Brad Guju. What are your thoughts? You're going with Botch, eh? I love your safe bets, Ted. I mean, I wouldn't pay out too much in Las Vegas, but. Did you uh, get the safe bet? Come on. Well, here's the thing. Remember a decade ago, and it was always Brad Guju, when is he going to win the national championship? And now he enters these nationals, the Briar, and he is always seems to be the guy. Is someone going to knock Brad off? I don't know. I've lost track of how many national titles he's won. He won the first one at 17, and then once he, he's up to five now, I think, right? So, I mean, a really remarkable Team Guju run here, and you know how many how many does he have left like let's enjoy it i do think he's still the favorite coming in even though the season perhaps is not as strong as some of his others uh when i last looked i think he was what fourth in canada something like that uh but i mean another strong strong field i mean go down the list botcher guju dunstone really intrigued to see what the reed crothers brad jacobs uh back end of that team is going to you know whether they can kind of get over that hump and and really I mean, they've won some, they've won the points bet a couple of times now. Um, can they get it done at a briar? That'll be interesting. Uh, interesting as well. There will be a none of it entry. So perhaps the depth, not quite as strong as the women's championship, which had those two uh, CTRS teams in the men will just have one. Uh, but then, Hey, you've got Kevin Cooey, all kinds of uh, great names. And to me, no clear favorite. I'm really intrigued here. Uh, I'm going to go with Mike McEwing, who I'm sure the payout will be a little bit uh, different than your safe bet. But I like I like how McEwing rolled through provincials, and 
hey, he's been around a while. He's due. Let's do it. I was wondering when you were going to get to Mikey because you picked him the last time we were talking. I was going, no, you're not even going to mention him this time. Well, you did finally throw him in there at the end. But yeah, I mean, I like, I mean, you got to pick one. And I, I really do like Botcher. But I, I, you know, I mean, Cooey obviously could be the one. Brad Jacobs has been great for many years and he's got a real strong team there with Carruthers. You know, I mean, Guju, how can you ever count them out? Like these teams are all built to be so great. It should be an absolutely fantastic curling. Regina is a great place to have a curling event. And uh, I'm looking very much forward to watching it. Yes, that was the one thing I wanted to mention is it's back in Saskatchewan. I was I covered a Moose Jaw Scotties in 2015 and the curling support is off the charts. There's no, really for me, like St. John's was one level for the Gushu Briar in 2017. And then the Moose Jaw Scotties was was another two, like right up, right up at the top. So I think there'll be, the attendance story will not be will not be an issue in Regina. I will predict. Let's uh, let's transition transition Ted from curling to another ice sport and hockey. And the Winnipeg Jets have been in the news lately. And when I last looked a couple of days ago, I think they had the top they had the best winning percentage in the NHL. Got a few games in hand on a few of the other teams, but just a remarkable season. Yet they're not packing that rink consistently. Why is that happening, Ted? And the co-owner, Mark Chipman, has weighed in on it. What's happening there? Could this team be on the move? I can't imagine it, man. Would that be a, a serious heartbreak for a community that already suffered that back in 1996 when the Jets left and went to Phoenix? Um, but as you said, co-owner Mark Chipman came out this week in an article. Um, interestingly, he chose to go to a Toronto market to talk about this Winnipeg issue. It was the second time he did it. He went to The Athletic this time. Previously, he went to TSN, talking to Toronto Port reporters both times. I think that ruffled some feathers here, but he was basically sounding the alarm about attendance. He said there's 9,500 season tickets right now. It needs to be 13,000. That's what they needed to be at to even get a team in the first place, and they need to get back to that point. He said it's not sustainable unless they can do so, and certainly that has raised some some you know, interest in this town, uh, people concerned about what this might mean down the road. And some people are not happy with the way the message has been delivered. And some people are just making excuses for why they can't come out. And uh, other people are just saying, well, I'm just not doing this anymore because I've already spent this much money, blah, blah, blah. Fact is, they got to find a way because it's not going to be sustainable at 9,500. I think uh, the Winnipeg Jets, Mark Chipman, the entire organization needs to do more to help the people uh, come back on board and the people need to be open to uh, coming back on board and helping this team get through this. It's not going to be easy. Gary Bettman is coming to Winnipeg on Tuesday. He's going to uh, speak to the media. He's going to speak to corporate sponsors. He's even going to spend half an hour speaking to fans before a game against the St. Louis Blues. And it's never a good sign, I think, when the commissioner is coming to town to talk about attendance and about what the problems could be going forward. Uh, big news in Winnipeg, no doubt about it. I don't think this is going to go the same way that it did the last time. I have a feeling that there's a pot, you know, much more of a, a base there financially for this ownership group. They've made a lot of money over 10 years. They sold out every ticket for 10 years. Um, they're having a little bit of a lull right now, just needs to get back, but they haven't shied away from making sure people are scared you know aware that there is this possibility down the road so i guess we'll see where it leads 
Fascinating. I'm not in Winnipeg, obviously, but I find it really intriguing that a team that is delivering on the ice, hovering near the top of the conference standings, they've re-signed many of their big guns. They've got the big names. This is a team that could go on a deep Stanley Cup playoff run. What happened? Why is the fan base ticked off here? I don't get it. Do you have any answers on that, Ted? Yeah, I do have a few. Uh, I think Mark Chipman said it himself. He said, for 10 years, we were not a sales organization. We were a service organization, and we weren't even very good of a service organization. Uh, and that's part of the problem. I don't think they had the greatest customer service you could imagine over those 10 years. I think some people who weren't in part of the season ticket group originally that signed up for a long time and were getting into those sold out buildings, I don't think, uh, I think there was a lot of people that felt alienated in that time and they just stopped trying to get tickets. They weren't interested once the tickets became available. Um, I think that there's been, there was some issues in the last few years with some guys on the team that just kind of turned people off. Um, I think the pandemic had more to do with it than anything else. Uh, you know, when you've got a year and a half, uh, more than a, you know, more than a pretty much a full season in 2021, um, and also the, the cancellation of the 2020 season and playoffs in a bubble and all that kind of stuff and no fans in the building for all of that time. I think people got used to watching it on television. I really do. I think they got used to this notion. Well, why do I need to be there? This is exciting. I'm enjoying this. There's no fans allowed in the building and it didn't cost me $300 to go to the game. And I think you lost, I think they lost people in that area. And a lot of those people have not come back. Um, there needs to be more done to try to get those people back. But realistically, this can't be on the individual ticket buyer because it's expensive to go to games. It's expensive to buy concessions. The economy's not great. You cannot, I don't think they'll ever make this up with the individual ticket buyer. They need the businesses, the corporations to buy more tickets and fill up that season ticket base back to 13,000, uh, you know, and I mean, I, the, to be honest, the, the attendance has gotten better and better all season. It was close to a sellout last night when they played the Arizona, Arizona Coyotes. It, it always, it's been historically that way in Winnipeg, a little bit soft just before Christmas, you know, starts to get better in the new year and is strong by the time the playoffs roll around. I expect that to continue, but even if they are to sell out the rest of these crowds, the rest of the season, if the season ticket base is still at that low number, they're not, they, I don't think they'll consider it to be sustainable going forward. Anyway, Greg, always love to talk about Winnipeg. We've talked about curling. We've talked about hockey in Winnipeg. Let's get to something that moves outside of those two realms and ask you, what were your takeaways from your time at Blue Jays spring training in Dunedin? I think you said that you were there for about 10 days. Yeah, the boys of summer are back and there's always a first day of school kind of vibe at spring training. The athletes are in great moods. They're keen to chat with you. It's uh a lot different than perhaps a stretch drive when the pressure's really on. My initial takeaways, you know, it was interesting. It was our first crack at Alec Manoa, who was a an American League Cy Young Award finalist in 2022, had a down year last year. He looks to be in pretty solid form and is gunning for that fifth spot in the rotation. I think you can pencil him in at this point. And if all of those five guys stay healthy, they are going to have again, for the second straight season, one of the top rotations in baseball. So, you know, they say pitching and defense win games. Toronto looks great there. The other big storyline is this, is this offense going to start to click? That was the Achilles heel last season. And they've tinkered with the coaching setup. They've basically added 
the offensive coordinator, which is something we see in football, not so much in baseball. They've added that to bench coach Don Mattingly's title. And so to see him on the side fields and working with the players and Bob Bichette described it as uh, Mattingly had a little fire when they were interacting uh, during doing some drills and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, an interesting new dynamic there. And it'll be interesting to see whether the offense will be kickstarted a bit because of that. And interesting to me too, you know, the storyline of, oh, so player A, player B is coming in shape. They're ready to rock. Why is it we, you know, the professional athletes, they should be coming in shape every season. It's, it's always a head scratcher to me. Oh, so-and-so got in shape this year. Well, yeah, you know, you're a pro. Come, come to training camp in shape. Way to earn 15 million. Yeah, that's right. I think that should be uh, mandatory, but uh, it's not always the case. And of course, baseball, look at Babe Ruth. He wasn't exactly Tony Atlas, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, so that was the storyline too. You know, player X is, uh, is, is fit and ready and uh, put on some muscle. You know, it's, uh, I really think this Blue Jays team will either be a 500 team, around 80 wins, or they're going to excel and they're going to get to that 100 win Mark, I, I don't see the mushy middle of 89, 90, 91 min, wins and, and and squeaking into a wild card spot. I think it'll either be a significant retool or let's go for it. That the window is is open, a competitive window. Uh, they've got Boba Shed and Vlad Guerrero Jr. who are slated to become free agents after the 2025 season. So, you know, next next fall, you're going to be looking at either extensions or maybe trades or whatever. So, it's going to be a fascinating season with the Blue Jays, but I, I do think if they can put it all together, they could really contend in the American League East. No doubt. Let's talk, uh, let's talk one more about hockey, Ted, and there have been some, some interesting uh, scraps of late. Many uh, great tilts, as you said. Uh, always stirs up the debate. Should fighting still be a part of the game? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Man, it's funny because I can go both back and forth on that one, you know, like depending on the mood almost because I grew up watching the Winnipeg Jets in the in the World Hockey Association. I mean, there wasn't just fights. There was brawls every game. There was guys getting their hair pulled out. Well, at least just once, Bobby Hell. But, uh, you know, there was there was blood on the ice, man. It was uh, it was really, really violent, uh, almost like slap shot level. Uh, maybe that's a little bit cartoonish, but uh, it was pretty, pretty, pretty bad. And and then you grow up through the 70s and the 80s, and there's a lot of fighting in hockey. Um, and but today it's kind of rare, and it always seems like it's these squared off uh, sort of stage tilts. It's like everybody's got to come out and skate around and drop the gloves a few feet apart, and then you know put them up and 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 make these stage fights. I just don't see the need for that. And it's not just that I don't see the need for it. It's it doesn't even totally make sense. I mean, if you hit a guy in the head with your stick, that's a penalty, maybe a suspension. You know, if you cross check the guy in the head like Morgan Riley did, it's five games. But by all means, please take off your gloves and punch this other person in the head as many times as you possibly can. And we won't worry about concussions. That's not a problem here. You know, it just doesn't make sense. And I don't want people to start saying that I'm going soft on it because, I mean, I don't hate watching fighting, but it just doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't make sense that it's part of this game. It's, it, you know, there, there's so many other offenses that you just get kicked out for. And then, but fighting, now, nah, go ahead, sit in the box for five minutes, come back, fight again if you want. Just don't do it three times, then you're kicked out. 
Is there any other sport in the world other than boxing and UFC where you don't get kicked out for fighting? Hockey's one of a kind. Lacrosse, maybe. Lacrosse. That's a good one. What are your thoughts? I like a good scrap, just like the next guy. Uh, but I can see I'm not as keen on it at the junior level. I used to go and watch the – I'm dating myself here. But in 1989, I would often go to see the Thornhill Thunderbirds of the Metro Junior A Hockey League. And they had a classic rivalry with the Wexford Raiders. Went all the way to the championship that year. That Thornhill team was stacked, by the way. Jeff O'Neill, Manny Legacy, many uh, a couple of future NHLers. But we're talking kids 16, 17, 18. Eric Lindros was coming up at that time, too, in that league. And there were, like, staged fights all the time. And it just it, it makes me feel queasy now to think about a 17-year-old, you know, getting punched in the head multiple times. Um, not good for a 17 or a 27 year old. It's just not great. Um, but it is the reality in some sports. And as you say, UFC, boxing, lacrosse, hockey, these are all violent sports. Um, but I'm, I'm okay watching a hockey game without a fight. And I think about the best hockey in the world played at the world hockey championship, Stanley cup final, the Olympics now uh, in 2026. And there are no stage fights. There's no, it's all about the hockey and I'm okay with that. Yeah, me too. And you were dating yourself by 1989. I talked about the WHA, man. <laughs> <laughs> I am older than you though. So we'll, uh, we'll make that a balance. Uh, Greg, I know this is something you wanted to talk about a bit and that's uh, going back to journalistic principles and practices in our industry, sports writing. Um, the, the creation of sports content in these days, there's a bit of a gray area. And that's where uh, there's sort of these undated bylines in papers where people are using quotes that other people have generated. Uh, in, in other words, a certain, uh, you know, one outlet has traveled to cover a team or a sport and other outlets are using quotes that were generated from their questions. Sometimes these quotes are posted publicly by the team or the organization online and therefore in, in a way they become public domain. So um, I guess I need to ask you because Canadian Press is still one of the organizations that travels a lot and a lot of other organizations don't. So with fewer outlets traveling the way they once did, what has changed and is it good for the business and the readership? And is it bad for the principles that we all kind of adopted growing up in this sport? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Ted. And, um, you know, without focusing on any one outlet or, you know, everyone has different travel budgets, everyone's doing their best with the sports media situation the way it is now. It is intriguing to me, and I think our, our listeners and viewers might be interested too, just in, in what's happened post-pandemic and and how some outlets tackle it and how others don't. And I was intrigued before going to spring training to see what the actual setup would be and how many outlets would be down there this spring, uh, given all the change in our in industry in recent years. And I'm pleased to report that it was pretty much normal. Uh, I've been covering spring training off and on for about 12, 13 years or so. And it was pretty much, as I say, uh, par for the course. You had, uh, of course, Sportsnet's the, the rights holder there. So they had their crew and will have their crew down through the spring. But uh, most of the major outlets were there. And it's, it's interesting to me how, you know, sometimes pandemic style coverage carries over now that we're 
essentially out of the pandemic. And the it's interesting to me to see how some outlets handle major storylines that are happening on the road. And obviously you'd want to be there in person uh, to get this stuff. But I think like Austin Matthews 50th goal was scored in Arizona. Um, you know, when you have spring training, how are non-traveling outlets going to cover that? It's, it's an interesting gray area because yes, the reporters who have traveled are asking the newsmakers their thoughts on things. These things get posted on team websites, on the rights holders, web pages. It can be tricky because um, if you're not there, because you need to balance the fact that you're not there with what you're going to write, you don't want to sound like you are there. Um, but it's also an excellent opportunity, I think, for those in our business to really try to flex their sports writing muscles and go beyond the eight minute availability with the manager or the six minute availability with player A and get into the weeds and, and use your eyes and your ears and and do the interviews on site that those who aren't there uh, are unable to do and really try and generate your content that way. Um, but it's been interesting couple of years just in general, whether it be an Olympics or a Stanley Cup or a Great Cup, um, just how everyone handles this uh, and you know how they handle place lines and bylines and we could go on and on. It's, it's an interesting one, especially in today's sports media world where we see so much aggregation, we see um, quotes being lifted and popped into different stories and blogs. And it's, it's interesting. I'll leave it at that. Do, do you have any thoughts on this one, Ted? Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you, I think there's certain principles that we have to abide by. And one of them is if someone else generates a question um, or, or you use a quote that somebody else had in their article, you have to credit that person, that article. You have to. You just simply can't make it seem like you're there if you're not. And if you are taking something from a team web website, um, I think you have to say that that was told to reporters who are in that city and, and that you weren't there. I do think you have to make that clear. Now, that's only if you're going to use those quotes, because I do think there are ways to write effectively without actually being there. And I just wanted to use an example. Uh, uh, Sunday night when the uh, Scotties final wrapped up and Rachel Holman one over um, Jennifer Jones, uh, the, 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 you know, our, our organization, Post Media, had a person there in Calgary who uh, was on scene covering it. And he was writing the main story, which was about Rachel Holman winning. It had to be, right? She won the championship. But there was this whole other big story about Jennifer Jones um, also playing her last game and having it come down to basically her last rock not being a very good one and, and not winning because of it. And I took that story on and I wrote it a lot more from a personal level, from a lot of knowledge that I've had in the past and took a different kind of tack with it. That story has been very popular today on our website. And, and I mean, I didn't need to be there for that, but you I just think you have to think differently. If you're not gonna be there, you have to think differently. You have to come up with a different kind of story and not the standard, uh, you know, be on scene covering it say everything that the players are saying and, and pass that along to the people. I mean, you can do that and it's still a very effective way of covering a sport, but if you're not going to be there, you just got to come up with these different ways. And I, I, you know, I'm still learning how to do that, but I think we're starting to come up with some stronger ways to make that, uh, you know, a valuable tool for us. For sure. And we could do, uh, I think a whole episode on that, but uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. We've got a couple more hot topics to hit here, Ted. There's a interesting development with the Toronto Argonauts, Chad Kelly. He's the CFL's most outstanding player. 
and uh, there's uh, news of a lawsuit now and the team being sued for uh, wrongful dismissal involving a staffer with that team. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Ted? Have you been following that story? Yeah, I've been following it and I, my thoughts are it's just not very good. I mean, it certainly involves Chad Kelly as well. Uh, he's mentioned in the lawsuit, the uh, organization is mentioned by, and it's a female strength and conditioning coach who has brought the complaint um, and is no longer with the team. And I mean, I don't want to get into the specifics of this at this point. We'll find out eventually uh, sort of what happened and, and what the consequences are. But I just want to say it's just not a good situation at all for the Argos and the, and the Canadian Football League. I mean, this is the kind of nightmare stuff that you're going to have to deal with. We're talking about the most outstanding player in the entire league. He's the highest paid player in the entire league. This is a league that needs good publicity and uh, and, and needs to build on momentum of having a pretty good year last year. Uh, it needs a strong franchise in Toronto, which it really doesn't have in terms of overall attendance, but there's been some positivity there with good teams lately. And Kelly is a big part of that because they're kind of building around him. And there's a lot of people involved in that organization who are important people in the CFL and important to making that franchise work. And if there's a big you know, scandal here, you just don't know what's going to happen down the road. And, and so I, you know, I just personally uh, think that this is something that is going to have to be dealt with very deftly by the CFL in terms of how they um, get their message across when all of this starts being, you know, uh, this laundry starts being done in public. It's, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what the developments are. Well, at this point in the riser, we like to shift to the all-timers where we tell some stories about our time in the business and ted you've got an interesting one today like we mentioned sydney 2019 scotties earlier on the pod uh but there was a non-televised great story early morning very early on a sunday morning take us back four five years ago to sydney. i'm either going to apologize to some of our uh, listeners for talking about too much curling today or i'm going to say you're welcome to our curling fans who for giving you so much curling content today but uh yeah my uh, all-timer goes back to sydney 2019 an early morning media game in which one greg strong and i were the front end players uh and uh we and greg came dressed as the karate kid i believe that was a big part of this so uh was it the karate kid Something like I that. I had a right? thick sweater on. I think I look more like the ranch, you know. Well, Classic. maybe it's a different time that you dress like the Karate Kid. But anyway, Greg is very good at getting his uh, getting a good get up going for his curling games. Anyway, it was the media game, and there was a draft, and Greg and I got drafted to be part of the team. Skipped by Colleen Jones. She's only a six time Scotty's winner. I mean, that's pretty good. And then Danielle Inglis, who just is coming off of her performing in the Scotties herself in Calgary and uh, performing quite well. Uh, she was choosing the other team and uh, she didn't want us, obviously, because we're terrible. And unfortunately, we dragged Colleen Jones so far down from her lofty perch as one of the greatest curlers in Canadian history that we actually lost that game. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just because you've got a great skip, if your front end's terrible, like, I mean, I could barely even bend down to take the shot, but uh, I thought we're, our sweeping got good after a while. But anyway, we lost, and the fact is we suck, and we have to apologize still to Colleen for uh, the embarrassment of losing that game. 
Yeah, nothing was good about our performance that morning. Good Lord. I think we had a late dinner the night before, too. So we were... Uh, dinner, uh, seafood, as always, in Sydney, followed by probably some karaoke. and uh, Late night karaoke, I remember, yes. Adult beverages, I'm guessing. It was great fun. I do remember, uh, you know, my second time curling, didn't know how to sweep, didn't know how to do a bunch of anything on the ice, and uh, looking into the hack, and Colleen raising her head and the intensity... Like it was on. This is just a casual media game on the Sunday before the final. But whoa, I was like, good God, you better learn how to sweep in the next 10 seconds because this this looks like it's really happening. And of course, I think I fell and yeah, it was just terrible. But good fun. Good fun at the end of the day. We got a great picture of that too. So that's a good one. I wanted to talk about uh, Ted. This is a different one. I don't think we've talked about auto racing here on the uh, riser in our previous seven episodes but uh you know it's interesting to me the pro wrestling always seems to play well and i know it's obviously not a sport it's sports entertainment and is more theater than anything else although they're fan fantastic athletes but at the 2007 champ car world series race in toronto brett the hitman Hart was there for some kind of promo thing and my cp colleague at the time chris johnson who's now at the athletic and TSN was tasked with interviewing the hitman. And it was funny, you know, this is, again, I'm dating myself here, but they used to, uh, in the media room, print out the clips and have all the newspaper uh, clippings from Southern Ontario for this race. And they would post them on this bulletin board. And so, you know, I, I you know, whatever, come on Saturday morning on the practice day or whatever, qualifying, and I'd look at the board and see how things were playing. And there might be a byline or two, you know, in the in the Woodstock paper or the Kitchener-Waterloo paper or wherever. Uh, and then I couldn't help but notice Chris Johnson had about 15 bylines, all from his interview with the Hitman. Pro wrestling plays. And, you know, it's it's rare that we get the chance to write about it. I've done a few book reviews, a few DVD reviews, interviewed uh, Mick Foley, the Hitman, a couple times as well, Ric Flair. And we joke about how wrestling is not a sport but pro wrestling gets big, big play for whatever reason. It's got its fans. And I know producer Alex is going to be loving this bit. Yeah, you know it. Big wrestling fan. He's pumped for WrestleMania coming up. So on that one, let's, uh, let's putting a bow on that all-timer. And of course, I'd like to give thanks to producer Alex Antonietis, the Toronto Metropolitan University Podcast Lab, and our social media intern, Ryan McMahon. Music is by Tuesday Night Jam, logo design by John St. Clair. Follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Ted. And that's all for this episode of The Riser. And thanks to Melissa for joining us too. Thank you, Melissa. Yes. <laughs>